power on. The following is a presentation of the Sovereign Technica podcast feed. Ooh, the man of tomorrow here for you. And, you know, this is something uh, I say it every time that I do it. It's such an honor to, uh, to do podcasts with just a couple of brilliant guys. And of course that being the guys over at the Agora podcast, Sek Magora and Penguin. And it's turned into a, I would argue popular subseries called into the void. Um, this release and if you're a patron, you're getting it earlier than the public release by a lot. Um, this release is number six, I believe in our series, uh, or in our, our sub series. And there's no sign of it ever ending. Um, we have a great time talking about all kinds of wild shit though. Admittedly, this episode isn't so wild. Uh, it does talk controversial stuff, but not in the sense of like the, the more galactic brain, <laughs> uh, uh, kind of notions that we often get into and into the void. Um, but that also lent it much to, uh, uh, penguin had a lot to contribute to the conversation. Of course, Seth always has his, uh, you know, the, the brilliant stuff he brings in. Um, and the conversation spent a lot of time. Um, there's really two subjects that we get into though. The, the shorter one is at the end and we're certainly, I imagine we're going to talk about that more in the future. Um, and that has to do with what, uh, I coined as the pro abundance principle. And you're going to have to listen all the way to the end to hear about that. But before you get into the pro abundance principle, uh, we spend a lot of time responding to a listener question that was sent into the Agora podcast, um, about a conversation that sec penguin and I had many moons ago about Israel and the modern state and kind of it's not so modern history as well. Um, and we spend a good amount of time covering it here now for clarity's sake. Uh, I have appended to this release in the sovereign technica feed, uh, this release of into the void. I have appended a, uh, section of a Q and a that I did exactly one year ago. Uh, so we're talking, you know, mid may, 2022, that I had done a Q and a in response to a question about Zionism and Kabbalah, which I think is incredibly appurtenant to the conversation that we had on the latest into the void. Um, so I am, I am putting that in first. That is kind of going to be my preamble into the conversation, because the one thing that I don't want to have come across is that somehow I am defending the notion of the state of Israel. I am not. And, you know, as you listen to the conversation, I think it makes it clear, but just to, you know, give more context and more history to my thoughts on both the modern state of Israel and frankly, the ancient, uh, uh, you know, nation of Israel. Um, I wanted to include this conversation I had uh, and, and actually the Wednesday, the Wednesday Q and a it's number two twenty three. link is in the show notes. If you happen to want to hear the whole thing, and if you're not a patron yet, of course, this will give you an opportunity. Um, but the episode was titled Israel is BS as in, yes, Israel is bullshit. And it is. And I say that myself as a Jew. Um, so I'm going to, we're going to go right into that. 
and then that will fold right into uh into the void number six and then you know and and you can ride that out that whole conversation around israel then we get into a conversation around pacifism property and again what i've told what i've coined the and and some people have been really excited about this concept, but I'll leave that to you to think about, uh, is the pro abundance principle. And then, you know, we already have into the void number seven scheduled, uh, and we're going to get nuts on that one. Don't you worry. <laughs> that is, we'll, we'll make sure that, that one's a good time. Uh, though I know we are going to talk also about the, all right, I'm pretty sure we're going to talk about the, the history, uh, some of the history of libertarianism in that one. Uh, but it's going to be a great time. Link is in the show notes as well for the Agora podcast. If you haven't checked that out yet, man, there are just some amazing conversations happening there and you are going to want to check it out, but I will leave this at that. So we're going to set the way back machine to one year ago in 20 in May of 2022. And then we'll bring it all right back here to when sec and I research sec penguin and I recently recorded, uh, our latest into the void. And hopefully the conversation will just meld right in and you'll hear the little dream harp to let you know when it's changing over. Uh, and of course, you know, well, You'll know just because suddenly you'll be hearing second penguin. <laughs> uh, but we, again, phenomenal conversation with phenomenal guys. Always a pleasure. I will see, I'll let it all ride out and I will see all of you woo, on the other side. So, okay. Anyway, enough of that. Let's get into, uh, let's get into the, all right. I, I want to get to the email, the Judaism question, and then we've got a fun one from the discord, uh, that I, that I will get to here. Um, okay. So I cut out all the parts of this that, yeah, that, that, that turn it into a question here. So I'm editing a little bit on this one. Um, okay. Speaking of a bridge too far, quote, speaking of a bridge too far, uh, which that's referencing, um, an episode I did recently talking about, uh, Kabbalah and reincarnation. Um, let's see. All right. So speaking of a bridge too far, I don't believe I don't believe you're telling people they should all convert to Judaism, but I could see with your intellectual influence that many might consider that never did before. I'm and then in parens, I'm saying this because, well, I might be and parens. Um, okay. I, I want to stop on that for a second. Uh, I, I don't know how to make this like any more clear, like, and I appreciate, you know, you don't recognize that or that that's what I'm doing. Like, I am not telling people to become Jews. I am not telling people to convert to Judaism. I am not suggesting anything like that. Okay. In any of the recent conversations that I've had around Kabbalah, questions that listeners have asked. Again, I'm talking about what you've asked me about, what you want me to talk about. Okay. Um, I am not coming at you with this stuff. I'm not coming at you like with, with an agenda of what I think you should do or belief system you should, you know, buy into. Um, and again, even me, like I am espousing a system, shall we say, I don't like to use the word system, but, but you know, I am espousing a thought process that is abundantly clear. And like, if there is a central tenant, it is, there is no God, all right. Or there is no sky daddy. There's, there's no sky daddy. So, you know, and, and, and if I said that to most other, you know, uh, observant Jews, I mean, they, they probably, you know, they call me a parkos and they say, get out of here. You know, like they, they, they'd accuse me of being an Epicurean, which fine, um, you know, and, and, and 
excommunicate me or something, probably. Uh, maybe, maybe. But you get my point. Okay, so I'm, I'm really, really not espousing that. Um, if you are intrigued by what I'm talking about, yes, I think in a lot of these texts that we've been talking about, again, there's a lot of truth in them. Okay, that doesn't mean that Jewish texts are the only texts that hold some kind of truth, uh, you know, like these ancient texts. Uh, I mean, I, I go through to, to understand, and there's a lot more to this question. I'm going to get to it. Uh, you know, I go through life and have gone through life with a premise that our ancestors are a lot smarter than we give them credit for. And in fact could have been, and this does not equate to advanced technology because intelligence and advanced technology are not mutually, you know, that like they're not mutually inclusive. Um, that, that our ancestors, again, were a lot smarter than we give them credit for and potentially are a lot, were a lot smarter, perhaps even more advanced, you know, even technologically, uh, but certainly, you know, more intellectually, um, you know, and ethically and so on, uh, than we are now. So that, that is a central premise for me. And that causes me, that premise causes me to look at ancient texts. And I mean, we're talking about a life journey here. This isn't something I started, you know, six months ago. Okay. Uh, you know this and I can, and the nice, again, as I said many times, the nice thing about doing a podcast for so long is I can point to all the places where I've already talked about this and where I've actually, or I've already hinted at it. And, and it's clear once you hear it and once you know. So, you know, I have the, the fort, the, I have the fortuitousness to say, uh, no, I'm not espousing something new. This is what I've been saying the whole damn time. You know, this isn't flavor of the month. This is a decade in the making. And actually, even longer than that, because like I said, it's my whole life. Um, like, for example, so, you know, even within like Kabbalah, okay, you're intrigued by Kabbalah. You go pick up the Zohar, like say you grab the Pritzker edition, you know, in English of the Zohar. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. Um, many volumes. If you're going to buy it, it's expensive. Okay. But you can just go to Z library and get your hookup. Um, maybe at some point, if people were interested, I could put together like a package. I mean, cause I do have this for myself, like on my Kindle, um, that I call like my little Hebrew library. <laughs> um, you know, and if people were interested in that, like maybe I could share it somehow, you know, with mega or something through the discord or, you know, but anyway, so with, you know, with, with Kabbalah, even by Kabbalists, traditional Kabbalists, um, there are different aspects of Kabbalah. Okay, like there's meditative Kabbalah, there's practical Kabbalah, there are other types of Kabbalah, they're all Kabbalah, and they're all, well, you can argue they're all valid, and they can all be implemented and practiced. Okay, um, some groups maybe don't, you know, don't argue for, or actually, there are many groups that think practical Kabbalah, as in using the knowledge espoused in Kabbalah, um, for not necessarily for one's own gain, even though that's what they're worried about, but for one's own enrichment, let's put it that way. That's not necessarily someone's own gain as in zero sum game where, okay, I have to have everything and you have to lose everything. Um, that's the concern around using practical Kabbalah. Um, you know, so, I mean, there's people who, you know, argue against practical Kabbalah. Now, practical Kabbalah is not often talked about 
because it is considered so dangerous. Um, practical Kabbalah is, of course, a major interest of mine, as well as meditative Kabbalah. You know, all aspects of it are, are you know, in, intriguing to me. And I think that there's a lot of truth within it. However, so like, so say you picked up the Zohar, okay? And you start reading it and you're like, what is this? You know, like you start reading and it's talking about, um, you know, what is the most beautiful rose in the garden? And it says the assembly of Israel, you know, and it just goes on. But what, but you know, but what rose is different than others? You know, like it starts a lot of symbolic language. You have all this stuff that, you know, that starts getting discussed and you're like, what the fuck does this mean? And how do I use this? So what, and what do I do with this? Right. And I hear you. I get where you're coming from, you know, especially when you read something like the Zohar. The Zohar is assuming you have excellent knowledge and a wide breadth of knowledge in the Torah, the Tanakh, the Talmud, the Mishnah, the Tosefta, all of it. Okay, there it's expecting you to have in a very, very broad knowledge and broad, well, broad in scope, but also detailed knowledge of uh, Hebrew texts. It's expecting that of you. And the book, most of the book or most of the books, it's because, again, it's multi-volume. Most of the most of the Zohar um, is not going to make sense if you don't have that, you know, that 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 initial education. Does that mean you can't take advantage of the practical aspects of what the Zohar talks about or that you can't glean truths that are within the Zohar, kind of like concepts like the mana machine, right? Uh, you know, and things like this. No, you, you absolutely can. Okay. In fact, that's what Moses Cordovero, who's one of the, if not the best teacher on the Zohar, uh, historically, I mean, you know, he was alive 500 years ago or 600 years ago, but that was his whole point is okay. You might not understand all this. You might not have that formal education, but you need to start practicing this now because the universe needs to get healed. And we're a part of that, you know, as Kabbalists. Okay. Uh, that that's his argument. So you can engage in practical Kabbalah, you know, without all of that, you know, massive knowledge. Okay. And again, some of the most respected rabbis in history, uh, you know, would say as much now. So why am I talking about this? Because one of the books that I think is one of the most uh, uh, concise and simplest um, ways of like of doing, you know, of engaging in a practical application of Kabbalistic principles is not written by a Kabbalist, is not even written by a Jew, as far as I know. I mean, to the best of my knowledge, Charles Hanel is not a Jew. Um, and it was written, you know, just maybe about a hundred years ago now, actually, now that we're in the 2020s. Uh, and that's of course the master key system. So, and that's my point is that you can find, you know, what I consider worthwhile in these Hebrew texts, you can find them elsewhere. It is not exclusive to these Hebrew texts. Um, I do think the Hebrew texts are the, have the most antiquity systemization, um, you know, and are a great bellwether to judge any other text by, but it doesn't mean that it's exclusive information. So <laughs> that's why I'm saying, like, I am not really arguing that somehow people have to become Jews or like, you know, whatever, all, all this stuff. Okay. Like that, you know, that, that you brought up. So 
let me let me let me reread this question. Okay, and or you know the first part of this question, and we'll we'll get in the rest. Um, speaking of a bridge too far, I don't believe you're telling people they should all convert to Judaism, but I can see with your intellectual influence that many might consider that uh, that never did before. I'm saying this because, well, I might be. So that in mind, as I've wrestled with in my recent research, the quote unquote land of Israel seems to be a central necessity for Judaism. As an anarchist, as I know you are too, as you say, quote, I can't get behind that, end quote. That being that, quote, being the state of Israel. Zionism is very real and a very real problem, even as I'm writing this email with assaults in the West Bank. Um, yes, that's true. I even read, uh, well, another journalist from Al Jazeera um, was killed, you know, due to fire from, from you know, uh, IDF assaults in the West bank. So you're absolutely right about that. Um, without getting emotional, how, how do you support Judaism, but ignore, but ignore with the necessity or ignore the necessity of, I think that's what you meant. Ignore the necessity of a state of Israel. I mean, nothing anti-Semitic by this. And I look forward to your answer. Much love. Um, okay. First off. Yeah. I, I, there's nothing anti-Semitic in talk, like anti-Zionism and anti-Semitic are not the same thing. Okay. Um, you know, I appreciate you clarifying. I didn't, I didn't take anything in this question for a second. In fact, it seemed quite the opposite, um, that it was, that it was anti-Semitic, uh, in any way. Um, so, well, as I hope I may just made clear, um, again, I am not espousing, you know, that, that everybody become Jews or anything like that. And, you know, really, as as, um, you know, as I've talked about before in other Q&A's, Judaism doesn't even, you know, Jews don't even want you necessarily to become Jews un unless there's like really, uh, you know, some kind of extenuating, you know, circumstances of some kind. Um, and there are already even if you wanted to buy into Judaism, as in, you know, these Hebrew texts being the reality uh and you want to go all the way with it to where you believe in a sky daddy and everything else. There's already rules that exist for Gentiles. You don't have to become, you know, a Jew at all. Uh, like, like we talked about with the Noahide laws. Also, as we've talked about, um, and I've tried to make abundantly clear, like there are, there is no Judaism. There are Judaisms and there are a lot of Judaisms even within what get considered to be like the major, th what could be called the major three branches um, or, you know, three or four, like you have reconstructionism, um, reform Judaism, um, you know, conservative Judaism and Orthodox Judaism, even within each of those, there are, are a multitude of groups, right? Like there's modern Orthodox as compared to, you know, Orthodox um, or there's Hasidim, right? Right. There's the Hasidic movement within Orthodox, which is totally separate from a lot of other Orthodox Judaism um, within conservative Judaism and reform Judaism. I mean, there's like there's a bunch of different groups that have what could easily be argued are opposing positions um, on some very you know central points. So that's important to keep you know, to keep in mind. Um, I mean, there's even like I've mentioned the, the, the Kyrate Judaism. Okay. Um, you know, that was something that a thousand years ago was actually very popular. Uh, and they did not accept the Talmud, you know, the oral Torah in general, they did not accept that. They believe no, only the Torah, only the written Torah, and that's it. Um, none of these rabbis, you know, none of that bullshit, 
You know, like that, that's, that's how they felt about things. Um, you've had other groups who actually like ignore the Talmud and, but they accept the Zohar. So you have, again, you have a lot of different ideas. And I mean, and even within rabbinic Judaism in general, even when there was not like say a conservative Judaism, um, or a reform Judaism or something like that, but still within rabbinic Judaism itself, you had a million, like Maimonides and Nachmanides argued different points nonstop. You know, I mean, Maimonides books, believe it or not, like if, if you study, you know, Judaism, rabbinic Judaism today, like Maimonides is just this towering figure, right? They call him the great Eagle. He's just this towering figure. Uh, but at the time, what would be called Orthodox Jews were burning his books because they thought it, it was heretical. So, <laughs> you know, there, there is no monolithic Judaism for for someone to even like attach to and to like really, really kind of convert to. Okay. Now that actually gets to a point and that is okay. But if there's so much disagreement, how did Judaism make it to today, especially when Judaism was never the religion that was in power, right? Christianity carried on because of the Holy Roman empire, um, you know, and because of Britain and a lot of other things. Okay. But because it was in power, that's how Christianity has stayed, you know, over throughout the past 2000 years, um, because it's it's, you know, in the Western world anyway, it has been the dominant belief system. Judaism has never been that like ever, you know, as far as, uh, you know, since the concept of nation states have been a thing anyway. And this this actually gets to kind of my my response. So it's important to keep in mind, again, with multiple Judaisms, there are a lot of aspects of Judaism that are anti-Zionist. They do not agree like a lot of the Hasidic movement, the Haredim. Um, and, the, and there are other groups who I mean, and some might call them fringe, but there are other groups who are Jews, hardcore Jews, Orthodox Jews. OK, you know, they're they're wearing their whole all black, the whole thing. Um, that think having a state of Israel certainly right now is an affront to God. Okay. So not all of Judaism is Zionist, uh, a lot. I mean, and, and there are, there are arguments that get made for this, you know, within Judaism itself, right. Um, by religious Jews, not just secular Jews. There are a lot of secular Jews who are like Marxists and other things. And they, uh, you know, like they're, they're against states in general, which, uh, they're right for the wrong reasons, but okay. But even with religious Jews. So, um, a, the, you know, the, like the, uh, well, you could argue that the Tanakh says that even though the Tanakh really doesn't, because the Tanakh actually very rarely talks about a Messiah really. I mean, I know that would probably shock people, but it's true. Um, but, you know, according to the Tanakh, the people of Israel cannot or are not to go back are not to have a state of Israel or a, the land of Israel until the Messiah comes, which sorry, Christians, the Messiah hasn't come yet. <laughs> and even within that concept of messianism, that that's a much larger conversation to get into anyway, uh, because of course, Judaism initially taught that there are actually two messiahs. Um, but then you, you know, we get into the works of like Abraham Abelafia, who actually says, 
No, there is no Messiah, but there is a messianic consciousness that you can achieve. And so everybody can become a Messiah. Uh, and, and that's, that's a whole other thing that I'm way more in line with, but that's a whole other conversation to get into. Okay. But it does, it is abundantly clear. And yes, I think Jews, you know, today, um, and perhaps they are answering for it in that they have such trouble keeping their state, um, that they're not supposed to return to that land. Um, you know, unless the Messiah has come, which the Messiah is not. Uh, certainly plenty of claim to be, but they're again, they're not. Um, now, so there's that. Uh, there's also what's called the, the three oaths, okay? Uh, so when the Jews were exiled to Babylon, you know, again, 2,500 years ago or so, when the Jews were exiled to, to Babylon, like part of that exile, there was a pact made between God and the Jews, and God, there's two pacts actually made, the two oaths made between God and the Jews. And then there was an oath made between God and the Gentiles, but they're called the three oaths. Okay. Now people interpret these things in a million different ways, which in Judaism is par for the course. But the idea goes that the, um, the Jews will, you know, like they, they've been exiled to pay for their sins. Okay. Um, and so the Jews are to, well, again, this is all in the Tanakh and the Talmud. The Jews are sworn by God to not forcibly, uh, you know, forcibly reclaim the land of Israel. So they can't take it by force, but then also they cannot rebel against other nations. Okay. And then the, the pact, the oath between God and the Gentiles is, you know, you won't subjugate the Jews or, you know, be too nasty, uh, excessively nasty to them when they're in your land. So this is the three O's. Now, I don't know how else to interpret the history of the state of Israel, you know, in the past 70 years, but it smacks of a forceful retaking to me. And that's breaking the three O's. Now the Gentiles by this logic, again, I'm not saying I believe the three O's I'll talk about how, what I think about all this, but I'm just kind of giving you like a more generalized Jewish perspective. The Gentiles clearly with what happened in Nazi Germany, uh, broke their oath with God, right? Did, of course, did they know about the oath? No, but then ignorance of the law isn't an excuse, right? Oh, kind of <laughs> in this case, um, because talk about excessive, um, uh, subjugation, <laughs> of the Jews. And it's not even funny, like, but uh, there it is. So now some, and I believe me, I've heard this. I've heard other Jews where they, they would say to me that, yeah, but because the Gentiles broke their oath, we can break ours now. So they're admitting it that this is going against the three O's, but they're like, yeah, but the Gentiles already broke it. Well, you know, in, in rabbinic law, there's nothing there. There's never really been an argument for, well, just because someone broke a law means I get to quite the opposite. You know, a lot of rabbinicism is all about, okay, yeah, but we keep, we, no matter what happens, we keep the commandments. We keep the 613 mitzvot. We keep going forward because that's what, you know, repairs the universe and blah, blah, and whatever else. So that doesn't fly that just because the Gentiles broke their oath means that, you know, that the Jews suddenly get to break theirs. Um, 
that's that's one of the like the major arguments for for anti-Zionism within Judaism itself. Um, I grant you, it seems like a minority anti-Zionism within Judaism seems to be a minority position, um, but not not as much as you would think, especially since, you know, the, the Hasidic movement um, is really anti or much of the Hasidic movement is really anti-Zionist. Now, let me let me give you my take. OK, on this first off, most important point is the land of Israel is bullshit. Okay. Um, Now, what do I mean by that? That it's bullshit. The land of Israel is not the land of the Jews. The land of the Jews is Egypt. That's the ancestral homeland, if you want to call it that. Okay. Now, you know, in, in, in Talmud Torah, there, there are very specific, like, I mean, there's so many things about, you know, that's considered special about the Holy Land. Okay. Uh, and again, which is traditionally thought to be Israel. Uh, like prophecy can only happen in the Holy Land. Um, the Holy Land is just like, you know, it's this just really powerful place uh, to be. Now, I'm not going to get into, you know, is Jerusalem an ancient spaceport and all that. I mean, certainly, you know, we could get into some wild conversations on that sort of thing. But that's that's kind of inconsequential to this. Um, I have argued for a very long time that. I mean, even like, in fact, you can listen years ago, even where the claim is where Solomon's temple was or where this, you know, like or the second temple is inaccurate. Like the Wailing Wall is OK. No, actually, the temple was over here. And that again, that's another conversation. But my point being that the state of Israel is a bullshit concept as it exists today, because that's not the ancestral homeland. That's not really the you know the land of promise for the jews okay um now my argument around that again there's 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 a lot of research that i'd have to get into i've covered some of it in the past um on sovereign tech episodes but like the work of ahmed osman is fantastic uh you know to to look into um but again one of my overall premises is that the Jews are actually Egyptians. Okay. You know, say like it could be, well, like for example, King David is actually Tutmos the third. Okay. It just, it got reinterpreted. So if all of that about the Holy land is reinterpreted, then the, you know, the concept of the land of Israel is off base, like, and, and it, it's off the mark. So whether or not there's some like special geography, you know, on planet earth. I mean, here's the funny thing, right? Is everybody's like, well, what's the big deal about the land of Israel? you know, about, about Israel, about that area. What's the big deal about Palestine? Who gives a shit live somewhere else? Right. One of the few places on earth that I feel like most people would say, Oh no, no, that land is something special. One of the few places on earth that I think most people would agree on that is Egypt itself, particularly say around the pyramids where they'd be like, Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Whatever. You know, this, this land doesn't matter. This land doesn't matter. Oh, but that land, something special will happen there. Something special is there. And that's because it is, you know, and we don't have to get into the work of Robert Bavall. I mean, you know, we could talk again, this is such a big subject, but I'm just trying to explain to you that how do I square away like any credence that I give Judaism with Zionism? Well, I think Zionism, is, again, is, is completely based upon false premises, false geography, a lot of falsehoods. So 
and I'm not the only one. I'm not like making this up. Uh, there, there are many, you know, professionals in their fields who, you know, not people on ancient aliens, actual people who, you know, have, have gone through the blood, sweat and tears, uh, who should get the respect of their peers. Maybe they don't, but they have the credentials regardless. Okay. And if those matter to you, there they are. Um, you know, that, that, that are making the points that I'm making right now. And I've certainly benefited greatly, um, from their research. So there's that the other part. Okay. Now, if I was to argue from a more, shall I say spiritual standpoint, um, or even from like, you know, giving the Jews some kind of like chosen people status or something like that, if I were to argue from that standpoint, um, I think that Jews wanting a nation state identity eliminates their peculiarity. They're, they're, what makes Jews special disappears. I mean, and you know, it disappears when you, when you start playing into petty politics, right? And that's exactly what the state of Israel is. I mean, you could say, oh, this is life or death struggle. Sure. I, I, I hear you but it it's playing into very petty politics because if Judaism at the same time accepts something like the Zohar and the idea that what the Jews do has ram of, you know, what they do and what they practice and they're practicing the mitzvah and everything has ramifications to the very fabric of reality, then, you know, worrying about being recognized by the UN or being taken seriously by other countries and all this stuff is, I mean, talk about bullshit. Like that's thinking so small in comparison to what you are supposedly charged with, you know, as the quote unquote chosen people. And there's precedent for this, you know, even though I think a lot of the history is rewritten history that exists within the Tanakh. um, You know, you look at like what happened with Samuel, the prophet Samuel is telling the, you know, the Israelites at the time, they're begging for a king. Why? Because they want to be like other nations. And Samuel's saying, don't, you don't want this. You don't understand. The other nations don't have it figured out. This is not a good idea. You don't want a king. But it caves in anyway. And God kind of caves in anyway, right? Again, buying into it, you know, through a traditional Jewish perspective. There, like this idea of, you know, the Jews having a president or a king or having like a nation state and all that, um, you know, that it, okay. So, so this is something that gets into like rabbinic commentary and like Talmudic commentary, uh, like the idea of animal sacrifices, right now, when you research this, you know, like this is, it's only something you can do when you actually have the temple. Of course, Jews don't have the temple right now, so they're not engaged in animal sacrifices and they've replaced it with concepts like teshuvah and others. Um, so you can read even from you know, rabbis like, and I'm talking like Maimonides and others where they talk about that. Okay. Animal sacrifices. Yep. They're what we're to do when there's a temple, but ultimately animal sacrifice was a concession. Not it it wasn't, it wasn't a concession to God. It was a concession to the human psyche as in Humans at the time just weren't at the point where they could understand, you know, like what God actually wanted. And so he created this 
you know, the argument would go that God, the sky daddy, you know, created this concept of animal sacrifice to give God what he wanted out of the Israelites. So it's a concession made. It's like prayer. Like, why do you need to pray? If God is omniscient and omnipresent, why doesn't he just know everything? Well, traditionally, uh, under a traditionalist view, he does. Again, prayer is not for God. Prayer is for your psyche to be able to interact with the larger forces of the universe. You see. So someone who, you know, like, like people who kind of evolve spiritually, mentally, whatever would get beyond. And in this case, the Jews should get beyond the idea of a nation state, the idea of a King, the, uh, I mean, they, there's lots of things that they should get beyond. They should get beyond animal sacrifices, which they have, which is interesting because, where does the concept that replaced uh, animal sacrifice, which is Teshuvah, where did that come from? The rabbis pulled it from the patriarchs. The rabbis pulled it from before there, you know, were the, the, the tribes of the 12 tribes of Israel. That's where they got that concept from. So closer to perfection, right? The time of Adam, Teshuvah is the idea. Animal sacrifice is not. Now, I know Cain and Cain and, you know, Abel engaged in in sacrifice and all that. Again, that's that. That is another subject for another time. But in the abstract, you know, the point being made here is that the Jews should get beyond the concept of, you know, like like petty real estate and petty politics. If they were existing in a closer spiritual state to what, you know, depending upon your viewpoint, whether it's more conventional or not, um, you know, to what Sky Daddy wanted or what the Ein Sof wanted or the infinite was, you know, or interacting with the infinite, you know, uh, uh, actually requires. But it's ultimately a shame. It, it's, it's actually it, it's it's kind of sad that. Um, you know, every time that the Jews historically like try to fit in with the cultures around them, uh I think something is lost. Like they, they, they should. And I'm speaking as one, you know, like, like I enjoy being a peculiar person. I think Jews should enjoy being a peculiar people that don't fit in. Um, and, you know, if I were to buy into the idea that they're the chosen people, that, that Jews are the chosen people and the light unto the nations, um, then be the light because the world is fucking darkness. Be the fucking light. Don't be like the rest of the world and having a state of Israel, having a state is just being like the rest of the fucking world. How boring and pathetic. Be more, be beyond that. So, yeah, I, I don't square away like like the state of Israel to me, like even within, you know, what I could interpret as, you know, my belief systems within Kabbalah and other things. The state of Israel is anathema. It's wrong as in a, it's even the wrong geography. It's in the wrong location, but B it's also anathema in concept. So I hope that answered your question. All right. Welcome back to another episode of into the void with Brian Sovereign, our uh, recurring show within a show uh, featuring the aforementioned Dr. Brian Sovereign. It's me penguin with Zach Magora here. Um, come at you live with a i mean it actually is live for now 
now. We do uh, broadcast our shows live as we record them, and you are you are free to join. If you are a patron, join us at our Patreon that you can get a link to. Um, but coming at you live with uh, Into the Void number six, which is actually our seventh episode with Dr. Brian Sovereign. We got an episode zero in there. Um, Brian, how you doing? Doing well. Yeah, episode six. I think maybe after episode seven, we'll, or when we get to episode eight, we'll have beat the average podcast. So for a podcast, within a podcast, we could probably start, we could probably stop counting at that point. But I like that this is episode six. It's uh, also fitting because I just saw Return of the Jedi last night. So yeah, <laughs> which happens to be episode six of Star Wars. But we're not here to talk about Star Wars. We're here to get nuts. And I know we'll do it. So anyways, <laughs> Sec, how the hell are you, man? <laughs> I'm doing all right, man. It's, uh, you know, it's springtime. So it's, I'm busy as shit with the business and the homestead. And um, we are, oh, just a little kind of announcement, just because we were just talking about it. And I'm kind of excited. We own uh another six acres like 30 minutes north of us that's just woods and i we just made the decision that we're gonna clear that and put a bunch of livestock on it so that's gonna be a whole lot of more work over the next couple of years but it's gonna be it's gonna be cool because we can do it we're gonna do it totally off grid the whole nine yards and uh make it as you know sort of closed system and self-sufficient as possible so i'm pretty pretty stoked about that um, Man, are you you're running your own little kibbutz down there? Is that is that what's going on? Uh, it's what I'm building. Uh, well, we ha- it's the empire of Sekistan. So you know, it's <laughs> I'm build I'm expanding my territory. You know, um, but no, yeah, I'm very, pretty pretty stoked very about medieval. that. It's very medieval. What? You got a little territory here, a little territory there. You're, yeah, you're yeah. making it work. Little yeah, fiefdoms. Well, yeah, one one king's cattle, one king's deer at a time. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So yeah, no, that's uh, what I've been doing uh, amongst everything else. So I've been I've been busy as shit, it's working seven days a week again. So yeah, tell me about it. Uh, yeah, business is booming. I gotta say, um, we had an early break in spring. I know you you would have noticed that just as much as I did. And uh, yeah, we've we've got a long backlog at work. So I gotta say, happy about that. Really um, taking over taking over in my um, noticeably more urban setting. Uh, just plenty of growing over here. So little, um, little recap, um, because we're going to go into a response to a previous episode, but a couple episodes prior, we talked about what is known as the Jewish question and, um, you know, sort of the history of anti-Semitism and, um, you were just, I think we got into the relationship between like sort of Jews and capitalism and stuff like that. Um, so we were, and I'm sorry, I, I don't, I couldn't find the, um, the question and I tried to scroll back and I, I couldn't oh, find it. I do it have exactly. it if you want. But... You got it handy? Yeah. Yeah. I pulled it up. Man, you are way better at this than I am. Might, might've been doing this for a decade, but <laughs> <laughs> I tried to find it. I couldn't find it. No, no worries. Yeah, I can I can read it if you want, um, or if you just want to, you know, go with the uh, overview. It's up to you. No, go ahead. Uh, go ahead. That was uh, sure. That, this, that's what this que- uh, question or response is in response to was our previous uh, episode on on Jewish folks. Yeah, which I, I love that we're getting feedback into a subseries. I mean, that almost, in my opinion, that almost never happens. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I dig it when it does. 
so here it is. Um, you had shared this with me. Actually, you shared this with me in, on February 8th of 2023. So that's how long we've been thinking about this whole thing that long. No, no, we really haven't. But, uh, <laughs> but we've been planning to talk about it for that long anyway. But here we go. Uh, quote, guys, been meaning to message about this episode. I agree there's a lot of unfair narrative around Jewish people, i.e. misattributed deeds. It would seem to me a lot of modern vitriol against Jews is really rooted in disgust of actions taken by the Israeli state. I'm not sure you touched on this. In my own mind, I recognize the outrageous crimes of the U.S. state, but I also see what Israel has done and may have done, and it somehow stands alone in its egregiousness, what they seemingly, quote, get away with, end quote, and their undue influence over the U.S. state. Thoughts? Question mark end quote. There it is. Okay. Well, I mean, I think there is something to say with that, that, you know, we, we, what we don't see today is not every, uh, suspicion of Jewish people, Jewish individuals and influence and, and society stuff is necessarily indirect, in you know, descent from historical and like medieval, you know, or, or post-medieval, uh, narratives of, you know, quote unquote anti-Semitism or, uh, you know, various opinions on, on Jews or, or groups of Jews or whatever. Um, so I think maybe, especially after a lot of those ideas became, you know, very taboo after, you know, the events of the uh, early 40s, I think the 1940s, um, I think that without yeah i can certainly say that without the uh founding of the state of israel and 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 the subsequent uh decades that we and and i guess you know american politics as well i get you can't leave out the american politics part of this um is uniquely tied to um both uh you know jews around the world and uh the state of israel in particular i don't think you would see I think you would see a very much, much less critical anti-Semitism or, you know, strong opinions on the Jews without that. And that's a lot of that's due to the fact that the United States has a very large Jewish population in comparison, even to the state of Israel. I mean, it has much more Jews. I believe the state of New York has more Jews living in it than the state of Israel. So, I mean, it's, it's a very heavily Jewish country even if they represent uh, out of a total of a, a fairly small percentage um but and of course the united states being the global hegemonic superpower with a lot of jewish individuals and uh a close ties with the state of israel i think that without any of that any any of the post 1945 and 1948 history um so to speak yeah i don't think you would see uh, some a direct connection a direct thread between any sort of historical pre-world war ii anti-semitism and uh or, Jew or narratives about the jews um and today certainly that's kept it alive because a lot has happened since that period of time yeah sec do you do you have anything you want to respond on that I would just say that I don't think the state of Israel is responsible for all anti-Semitism, but I think a lot of Zionists have done um, Jewish folks a disservice by conflating any criticism of the state of Israel with actual anti-Semitism. 
And I think what makes Israel stand out in modern times is it acts very much like a colonial power, like straight out of like the colonial period when we're living in sort of a um, a, a neo-colonial or post-colonial world in some sense. So it's like a very much like, um, you know, like 17th century colonialism in a modern state. And yes, uh, the United States is, um, you know, guilty of, Fought, you know, much worse crimes over the, the over the over the years and over the, the centuries and such. But you're seeing uh, um, much more atrocities come out of the the this, this, the state of Israel's treatment of the Pal- Palestinians um, in modern times when it's you know this is sort of colonialism is sort of frowned upon you know these days. So I think that's what makes Israel stand out as particularly egregious among modern nation states and i i could be wrong it just could be you know um it could be just yeah. you know on par or well, average <laughs> in comparison well, even within the scope even within the scope of colonialism i mean it's also an ethno state which is pretty um it's pretty exactly. much, it yeah, stands sure. out as an ethno state in a way you know a very uh, nakedly an ethos ethno state in a way that's really not comp terribly comparable with any other state and especially in in current times or, or at all in history. In, in fact. Yeah. I've seen a lot of parallels drawn between like, um, apartheid South Africa and, uh, the state of, uh, the current state of things in Israel. Um, so yeah, I think you are, are correct there in a time where this is not accepted, you know? <laughs> um, so I think that's where, where I don't think this is, uh, the, the root of all anti-Semitism. Currently, uh, I, mm-hmm. I don't think that's the case at all. I think uh, w- even if the state of Israel didn't exist, you'd still have people in the United States with, you know, we're, uh, you know, Jewish conspiracies and, and that sort of thing, you know, just because of that. I mean, they li- the Jews live here, too. So it's um, right. it's an easy it's been an easy other. I think the state of Israel is certainly and there's been a lot of Jews that have made this point that it has done more uh the state of israel has done more to stoke anti-semitism um than anything else in in recent history um but sure what are are your thoughts on this yeah so um i mean i imagine anybody listening to this knows uh but of course i i am an ashkenazi jew um it's important to kind of to to preface that because something i'll discuss is the concept of uh, what is called uh ashken normativity (laughs) which is well, I guess where, where I want to start on a lot of this is, it, so it is an ethno state. Um, it is, Israel is an incredibly complex uh, government in comparison to many other governments uh, for a multitude of reasons. One of the, in fact, one of the things that makes it so complex is, and I do want to touch on some of the history of Zionism. A lot of this we covered in the previous Into the Void, but I, I'll, I'll hit on it as well. Um so the the it was early what was it in 2022 there was the big deal around well Netanyahu ends up getting back in power in December and he wants to effectively disempower the Supreme Court in Israel. Um, there was some condemnation to come out of the Biden administration, a whole bunch of other nonsense and whatever. But and he's backpedaled on it because within the country 
you know, Israelis, uh, both Arab Israeli as well as, you know, more uh, uh, Jewish Israeli and, and, you know, natural Israeli are, um, you know, had a real problem with this. So the reason that this was such a, you know, outside of it being, okay, you know, is, is Israel a democracy? What is a democracy without a Supreme Court, without this, you know, check and balances of powers? Outside of that, the the odd part is so we have you know we have a, uh, a quote unquote republic really but you know we we like in the we I don't even like to use we but in the United States the United States claims to be a democratic nation um, and it has a Supreme Court the checks and balances work in the United States a little bit differently though because there is a mainline document that everything gets held up against and that being the United States Constitution now the Israeli government doesn't really have a constitution. They may have some degree of documentation that they will appeal to, but really all they have are these very basic laws that you could almost put in quotes when you talk about them. Um, and there are a lot of things that were questions at the founding of the state of Israel in 1948. Um, and that includes how important is you know the Torah? How important is religious law? you know, biblical law, uh, you know, to the government and, and amongst even where exactly is the border of the state of Israel? Like there, there, there are a lot of questions that frankly in 75 years and this year it is 75 years uh, with the Hebrew calendar, they would have celebrated it on April 25th, the 75th anniversary of the founding of the state of Israel uh, by, you know, our, or the normal calendar, the Gregorian calendar, uh, I guess it'd be May 14th that that, that would, you know, so this is 75 years where there are foundational questions of what makes the state of Israel, what it is that have never been answered. And I bring that up to say that, you know, this isn't a country that has a lot of hard and fast rules. It actually doesn't. Um, and it also, while it tries to copy what at the time was these, these grander concepts of like, you know, European nationalism, while it's a, co a country that tries to copy that, it never really did. Um, and it also had an issue where really you had two different, you know, one of the major concerns that people will bring up is this idea of Zionism. And that's without even getting into necessarily a conspiratorial Jews rule the world kind of bent because Zionism, it was a gen is, was a genuine movement. Um, but there's really not a, there's not a Zionism. There are Zionisms and there are many. Um, in fact, at the, at the founding of Israel, there, there's really a, an ideological battle around two different types of Zionism. Now, the one that actually won, which ended up with the, the first prime minister of David Ben-Gurion was a socialist, uh, Zionism. And, you know, that, that's really important to keep in mind that, in fact, I made the joke about, you know, sec, uh, starting a kibbutz <laughs> down there. Um, that, that was, uh, that was, a, a, a an attempt at a segue because, you know, the, the people who ran the kibbutzes in, in Israel ended up like winning the day and, and becoming, you know, basically the government. But, you know, you go from the, from the late 1940s until you get to the 1970s. And by the 1970s, you know, those socialistic ideals that were being held, uh, you know, met the realities of capitalism, both the advantages and disadvantages of that. And, you know, it would fall very much away from being that socialistic nation. Um, and so, A, I think a lot of people forget that, you know, this, this is not 
that initially Israel was not some kind of democratic bastion, or I mean, it was in the sense, you know, that yes, you could vote, but you know, it's not, it wasn't like this, this home of capitalism whatsoever. It was a very idealistic and socialistic country for, yeah, you know, at least the first half of its existence or so. Um, and that would eventually change. Now what's happening in Israel, you know, that everybody was freaking out about with the Supreme court getting knocked out of the way. See, the Supreme court really is what holds a lot of the power in Israel. And that's because of those, there isn't that constitution. There's just these very loose laws and the Supreme court, whoever, however many people hold, however many chairs within it, that Supreme court gets to really interpret those laws. And in some ways it's the most powerful position in there. So that's why Netanyahu wants to kick that out, you know, and, and, and start solidifying a lot of laws. So the funny thing is, and, and this speaks to, I, I'm again, part of the reason I'm starting with this is it speaks to the question that, okay, yeah, there's like, there's religious or, you know, Jews that we think of more in a religious sense and they get, you know, uh, uh, perhaps irrationally, uh, attributed and, 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 lumped in with what the state of Israel does. Um, I, it's a confusing thing because really the, the state of Israel does not, uh, yes, it is an ethno state, you know, I guess in some way similar to say Japan or something along those lines, that's true. But the religious aspects have never been codified. Now they often get favored. Sure. Just because of who's in charge. Um, but they've never really been codified. And actually, it's not until the past year that that has really become a reality where, wow, you know what? Uh, you know, uh, uh, Levitical law could become this could become government mandate in Israel. Um, and the interesting thing to happen out of that, and you can get this right from, you know, uh, from from foreign ministers mouths, you know, in, in Israel uh, They'll, they, there's there's a famous saying where they'll talk about American Jews and they'll say, well, yeah, American Jews they used to be like brothers, now they're like cousins. Now, why why would why would you know the foreign minister for Israel say such a thing? He's saying that because American Jews don't even like what the state of Israel is doing, particularly as late with what you know Netanyahu has in mind. Um, yeah, not so, at all. Right. So the so the this association between Jews and the state of Israel, like it doesn't fly because in America, which you're totally right, Penguin, for bringing up, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm from New York as well. I mean, like there's so many Jews in New York. We have the towns in New York. We all have joking names for them. Like I, I came from a, or well, I'm originally from New York city, but I, I lived many years in a town called Utica. We called it Judica because there's just so many fucking Jews there, you know, and I say that as one of them. Um, but you know, there's such a large population of Jews here and most of them do not agree with the actions of the state of Israel. They might appreciate that there's some kind of home for Jews to go to. And yes, anybody who has, uh, you know, who's ethnically Jewish can apply for what's called the law of Aliyah, which is the law of return. And so you can get instant citizenship. Like I could do this. I could get instant citizenship, you know, for, for Israel if they want to. And they might appreciate that that exists. But let me assure you, and, and you don't have to tr take my word for it. You can go to the mainstream news. Most Jews in this country are not happy about, you know, how, how Israel handles business, uh, certainly at least in recent years. Now, we could get into conspiracies around what, what Israel has done, you know, since its founding. And there are certainly some ugly parts to that story. And I mean, there's other aspects, I think, that are worth talking about because there is no just like there's no monolithic Zionism, which I think is important to touch on. There's also no mon monolithic Judaism. Um, 
And that leads to some very, very nasty business uh, of what is effectively anti-Semitism within Semitism uh, between Ashkenazis and Sephardic. And anyway, go ahead. Yeah, let me respond to that. Basically, going back to what I said before. um, Yeah. And to clarify, uh, yeah, we are seeing a massive shift. And the reason we're seeing a massive shift in, in the state of Israel, the culture, the political culture. Everything that's going on over there, a big shift, and everybody, everybody's commenting on that part of the world or whatever is pointing that out. Um, and yes, now we're seeing a break because we've we've seen the state of Israel having existed long enough that they've created an entirely separate, they've created their own politics and their own, really their own concept of nationality and even ethnicity, but their own concept of nationality that is diverged greatly and is rapidly diverging from like the past and from Jews and other parts of the world. That's very true, very clear. Um, but, you know, there's also the intervening, you know, the, the intervening first 70 years, I think, where there were, were very close ties between the, uh, obviously between the Jewish, po- you know, the very the Jewish population and the the institutions of this country that that have um, that Jews have over those decades really climbed the rank, especially in those decades, um, somewhat before World War II, I guess, but I think very much after uh, World War II when we really started seeing a lot of uh, Jewish names throughout American institutions, business, government, and everything, um, because you know they, a lot of them came over previously as, as dirt poor immigrants. Um, and so there was, there's a very strong base of, of Jewish people in this country and that would have supported the state of Israel. And likewise, you know, there's always that, that very real concept of uh, the, the, the Jewish or the Zionist lobby. Um, there was a lot of back and forth for like 70 years. And now, just now, like you said, very, very recently, we're seeing a strong shift. I mean, Netanyahu has been around for a long time and there was the Netanyahu and the, uh, very being very close with the uh, American Christian right and the neo the, the George W. Bush style neocons and everything. Well, guess what? That those factions have both kind of gone by the wayside in American politics. That's they they no longer need to be sort of a little brother to America or anything like that. That's that's a that's the past. We're in a new era, and they are very much um, on their own. They're very much you know have a complex diplomacy with the uh, a increasingly multipolar world and increasingly multipolar diplomacy and they've really at this point have shown that they have created an entirely self-sustaining you know new nationality um and there's a lot of i'm sure there's a lot of ideological diversity within within israel and actually there's very complicated politics as you mentioned but um there's also the even if you want to draw draw a line of things, things are rapidly shifting in the 2020s. Um, there's the intervening period between 47, 48, I get, I get India, Pakistan confused with um, Israel, but I think it's 48. Um, the intervening time between 48 and, you know, say 2016, let's just say, and onwards with Trump and the Abraham Accords and the whole thing about the open cooperation with the Gulf states and the, you know, a lot of that has something to do with it too. We're, we're in a completely new era of Israeli history. Um, but there's also like, again, that, that past that, that intervening 70 or 80 or so years that was, um, there was a very complex relationship between 
was essentially a, a strong base of a, a Jewish population in the United States that numerically uh, was larger than the Israeli population, I think still is, and um, the state of Israel. Uh, so, and there was just a lot of back and forth and a lot of, a lot of connections, a lot of political connections. And Israel, likewise, is a very important part of American politics for various reasons. I mean, there's the Cold War, there's the post-Cold War, there's the neoconservatives, there's, there's a lot going on there, for sure. Yeah, you know, I think something, another point that gets where, because I, I kind of got the sense from the question that the listener asked, you know, it seems like Israel always gets a pass. Um, and I, you know, it's, it's certainly from America, right, which is the the, the superpower. Um, I don't know that that's always been true. I mean, for one thing, you know, there's, there's got to be, and some of this we talked about in the previous episode, for example, you know, one of these solutions, okay, what, you know, during World War II, what do we do? with the Jews, you know, in fact, I mean, most of them, many of them were turned away when they got to the United States to, to escape from Nazi Germany. Um, but beyond that, okay, well, we got some here, what are we going to do? Or what do we do with Jews around the world? How are we going to keep, you know, the, the Holocaust from happening again, things like this. And, you know, at the time, uh, FDR had ideas from Arizona to Oregon to, to, to put, you know, to just turn into like kind of a, a weird quasi Jewish state. Um, and but he didn't want to deal with it. And you can read his own letters. He he was not he, he did not want to have to be involved in in any kind of uh, uh, problem solving for for the Jews, ultimately. Um, and honestly, his language is, you know, would easily today get labeled as anti-Semitic. Same with, you know, who was in charge of the U.S. when the Israeli state was getting created in 48. You know, we had Harry Truman. Harry Truman. Was refusing to to talk to you know anybody about zionism he was refusing to talk about the, this uh you know creating a jewish state uh he basically had to have a lifelong friend who he fought in a war with who happened to be jewish but was like from missouri you know jacobson was his name um you know jacobson had to come in and say look i'm asking you for a personal favor i want you to talk to this guy who is you know a, a key to setting up you know a jewish state in the middle east and that's finally what did it. But it took that kind of personal favor. Otherwise, Truman was like, I'm not, no, I'm not answering any calls. I'm not dealing with this problem. I am not interested. So the idea that the United States has somehow always been chummy chummy with this idea of the state of Israel, not, no, I mean, no way. Not, like the, the history shows the exact opposite. Um, also, you know, I mean, the other thing we could bring up, and this is an example uh, that I bring up often, is the character of, um, of Jonathan Pollard who Jonathan Pollard was a spy for Mossad. He was a spy for, for Israel in the United States. He got locked up in the eighties and he stayed locked up until 2020. You know, if, if somehow, Oh, we're, you know, the, the United States and Israel, Oh, they're just the best of, of goddamn friends. Why would an agent of Mossad be locked up for 40 years? You know, like, I, I mean, like, these are things that don't make sense. Um, I know a lot of people want to bring up, well, you know, talk about egregious things that the state of Israel does. What about the USS Liberty, right? Everybody wants oh, to bring yeah, that I'm about up. to say it. Yeah. So, you know, this is coming out of the Six Days War, right? So this is in the late 60s, starting in 67, or, well, it was in 67. Again, the length of the war is in the name. But, you know, the US Liberty, or USS Liberty, everybody talks about this. You know, well, here it is. Israel, you know, attacks this, uh, you know, quote-unquote friendly um, you know, U.S. naval vessel, 
and kills some odd 32, 36 people, however many it was. Um, and they don't have to do anything. You know, Israel doesn't, they don't even really get a slap on the wrist. Sure, they pay some reparations to the families of the people that died as an apology, but they don't even get a slap on the wrist for this. And so people are like, well, that's because Israel actually rules the world. Israel's the, you know, the, the bad guy that gets away with everything because they're really in charge somehow or whatever. Um, I mean, you know, there's there's a lot of different theories as to what actually ended up happening with the USS Liberty incident, uh, because what we do know when we, you know, there is what you would qualify as incontrovertible footage of uh, IAF, Israeli Air Force, uh, jets, you know, uh, attacking a, a U.S. naval vessel. Um, and that did happen. Uh, I've myself, I've always felt that the, the response that makes the most sense, um, there's a, there's a, a Russian author. He wrote a book called the, the history of Mossad and, uh, his, what he said in that was the Soviets were assisting Egypt, right? Because the six day wars between Egypt and Israel, um, the Soviets were assisting Egypt and the Soviets were spying on anything, any radio chatter that, that the Americans were picking up and sending back out. Okay. And so Israel effectively, like they knew this, they knew that this was going on. And first off, and, I, and again, I'm not, you know, yes, I'm Jewish. Uh, I am completely against the notion of the state of Israel, just to, just to be abundantly clear. And just in case somebody thinks I'm, playing apologetics here or something. I'm not, I'm just saying there, there is a reality to all of this. There is a very twisted state-minded logic, which I even hate to think about, but here it is. Um, but I think, you know, I, I agree with this author on the history of Mossad, you know, that, that what ended up happening was, um, or what I was going to say, the USS Liberty itself was a spy ship. Like it, it was not, it's not like it was all hunky dory. Oh, we're just innocent people out here. No, it, it's actually on a surveillance mission. It, it, it is a spy vessel. Uh, you know, it even had, there was an adjoining um, uh, submarine nearby that couldn't do anything to help it when, when the Liberty incident happened. Um, but, you know, it's not like they were all, you know, all hunky dory or anything. Um, they're, they're literally engaged in subterfuge. So with this incident, um, the Israelis knowing, or the Israeli government knowing that, well, so, okay, <laughs> I'm trying, trying to like bake in the history quick, because you had where there was a ceasefire that was being signed between uh, Egypt and Israel. But Israel planned the instant that they could get past the ceasefire, they were going to start um, attacking the Golan Heights but they couldn't let anybody know that that attack on the Golan Heights was going to happen. Um, but the USS Liberty would have picked up that it was going to occur. And thus the Russians would have found out. And then the Russians would have told the Egyptians about the attack on Golan Heights. Syrians. And so, yeah. Syrians. Right. Yes. And so, um, so what it, what ends up happening is they're like, well, we've got to take out the spy vessel because otherwise they're going to, they're going to know what we're doing. They're, they're going to know about our surprise attack on Golan Heights. Now I'm not saying that's the best answer in the world. And there's a lot of different, you know, again, there's a lot of different theories as to what exactly happened there, but I do think that's the one that makes the most sense and has the most uh, twisted logic behind it. Um, but again, that's another case, regardless of how you look at that, that's another case where, okay, this idea that somehow the U.S. and Israel are like the best of friends, 
oh no 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 you know israel will 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 do what it wants when it wants when it needs to uh or yeah it heals it needs to go ahead we we can't we can't separate uh this history from the history of the cold war i mean uh, you know a, right. a lot of the uh support I, I think a lot of the strong support began in the eisenhower administration but with the uh you know like like you're just mentioning the six-day war that's all intertwined with cold war politics and uh, yeah totally you, totally you know. yeah and so again another country the republic of china taiwan the republic of china the chinese nationalists they had also a huge lobby in the united states too and without even having this massive jewish population and this massive jewish lobby in the united states lobbying the u.s government for supporting the state of israel um i'm don't I'm sure there was some Chinese nationalists lobbying the U.S. government. They were very close with certain aspects of, I think, the right or whatever. But there was a huge, um, a huge part of like like American Asian policy and China policy was driven by the Chinese nationalists in the Republic of China. So Taiwan, we call Taiwan now, but the Republic of China um, had had a huge impact and a huge lobby in the in the United States government at the same time, um, and they they got a lot i mean they got they've never been they never got that official recognition or will or whatever um, from the united states but they got f-86 saber jets and and u.s training and all that stuff and uh you know um, the entire korean korean war and post-korean war korea policy and all that stuff uh from what i understand the korean war itself was almost was very largely driven by China policy and on the uh, Republic of China and their People's Republic of China, Chinese communists. Um, and the reason that war was prosecuted the way it was and all, all the carpet bombing and the massive military, the massive military conflict in the Korean Peninsula was largely driven by the greater policy of, you know, containing China and, and kind of on behalf of, you know, a, a whole decades of policy on behalf of the Republic of China on the island of Taiwan. Um, in the same way that so much policy for the U U.S. and the Middle East was based on the, that one country, that little country, the state of Israel. Sec, what do you got? I would just say that um, I've also heard the theory that um, Israel had been um, committing atrocities and mm -hmm. they realized that the liberty was uh, aware of this and couldn't mm -hmm. allow that those, that information to escape. And as far as like um, them not having any repercussions, I think I I think the Cold War narrative is the correct um, assessment of this. Like, right. so L LBJ was really like one of the first presidents to like wholeheartedly support Israel, mm -hmm. and it was at a time where like I think the U.S. It was you know we're talking the the height of the Cold War, really, and I think the U.S thought it needed any possible friends it could get you know so yeah. if the soviets are supporting egypt you're obviously the, the u.s is going to support the other side right right so I, I think that's there's not much more to that than that now since then they've uh the uh the zionists have certainly have a a decent uh um what do you call it? a lobbying hmm. lobbying in the united states but i think that's been waning and and um, in past decades oh yeah yeah um in past years for sure yeah yeah uh and like any support i or my from what little i because i try not to pay too much attention to politics but from what little i do glean um you know 
support from the Democratic Party in the United States has waned significantly uh, towards Israel. I mean, you know, the Republicans always are doing what they're doing, but um, there was a time where there was fairly, you know, uh, unanimous support within the Democrat Party as well for Israel. And that's that's no longer really a thing. Um, and a lot of that has to do with with Netanyahu, which I mean, this happens, you know, again, that 75 year history, Netanyahu has been in charge for about a fifth of that. That's incredible for, or, and I don't mean that in a good way, but that's incredible for any, you know, anyone to achieve, um, within the lifetime of a country. Uh, but yeah, I, you know, I mean, this is with, with Zionism, you know, even this, you know, the, the guy who really pushed and coined the, um, the term, but really pushed for and started the movement of Zionism, that was Theodore Herzl. And his original idea was, yeah, we'll get a plot of land in East Africa. That, that's what that's what he called for. You know, he wasn't even saying to go to the state of Israel. So, you know, that's why it's really important to bring up like, OK, we, you know, we hear you. There's these conspiracies. There's these concerns. Why does why does Israel get to be so egregious? Blah, 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 blah. So, well, understand that, you know, this idea that it has to be Israel, that's not even an original concept within Zionism. And there's not just one Zionism, there are Zionisms. There are so many different ideas around, or so many different um, potential implementations of an idea of Zionism of a Jewish homeland. Uh, you know, that, that again, originally didn't even include the state of Israel. What do you guys got? So yeah, lot, I want you to critique what I'm about to say. Oh, go ahead, Zach. So a lot of my knowledge of the history of Zionism um, comes from listening to Sheldon Richman, who's, who's, pretty great on this uh subject and he draws a lot from like uh, he's he's also a uh, former or he's a uh, jewish fellow uh no a longer religious no. <laughs> <laughs> no, he, yeah. he's a, a non-religious jew uh yeah he's not, not no longer religious and he grew up a, a zionist as well and he's done a lot of research into this and he draws a lot from like uh uh jews and rabbis who are anti-zionist like uh Damn it, I can't think of the one fellow, but there's the other guy, Slomo Sands, who's done a lot of writing on this. Yeah. From a history of Zionism. And originally Zionism, it was not a religious movement, believe it or not. Uh a lot of the and, and again, I'm going from what I've heard from Sheldon Richmond here, but a lot of them were very secular. Um yes. and um they they themselves ascribe to a lot of what you would uh sort of attribute like um anti-semites saying now like these people are uh subversive uh subversive uh, jewish folks are subversive uh, subversive force in any country that they would possibly live in so we need to make them their own homeland all of these sorts of things like very um pretty egregious egregiously anti-semitic um a lot of these uh you know jewish conspiracy tropes you, you would uh, not know the difference between the early Zionist and like uh, your average believer in Zog or whatever the thing, right? Sure. And at the time, and this is just, again, my understanding sort of secondhand is uh, most Jews were not on board um, for the way I've heard it put is like the reform Jews, because, you know, there's lots of different Judaisms. Hmm. The reform Jews were like, uh, we don't need a homeland. We have New York. Right. And the Orthodox are like, who are you to tell us to go home? You're you're not the Messiah. 
you know what I mean? So it was really like, uh, and those were the two main schools of Judaism. That, and correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, but those were the two main, uh, I guess, schools of Judaism at the time. And both of them were very much against Zionism. And you'll mm-hmm. still find a lot of Jews that are either, if you know, not against Zionism entirely, but a very critical of the state of Israel. It was not until like, you know, the rise of Nazi Germany that people that a lot of Jewish folks got on board with the, uh, the project for, you know, obvious reasons. Right. Um, But I think like you, we've been, we've all said before here in this conversation, I think even support among Jews for the state of Israel is waning, especially in America, because they sort of have these, um, you know, somewhat liberal values of like, you know, human rights and, uh, you know, uh, civil rights and those sorts of things. And uh, for, you know, people to be treated uh, poorly based on their ethnicity in um, the, the uh, what's called greater Israel um, is, is an affront to like their ideals, uh, even as Jews. So I, I don't see, I don't see, um, again, I will repeat that I don't see um, the state of Israel uh, being the source of all anti-Semitism, but I also think that many Zionists are guilty of trying to make that so. Um, Sure. For the reasons I said before, conflating any, you know, making, um, you know, basically making the government of Israel the government for all Jews in the world and Mm -hmm. how they sort of present that. And then also any criticism of the state of Israel, you are immediately criticizing Jewishness itself, which is not true either. And to conflate those two is to, I think, further uh, the rise of anti-Semitism in some sense. Well, it's the problem of having something that kind of comes off as an ethno-religious state. And and I think the history is a little more complicated whether it really has been that. But when something, when some people feel it advantageous to like present it as that that's what you get and jews do have us as a religious group it's it's uniquely a ethno-religious group and so on and so forth where like they do have a connection with they do have a connection with the state of israel in a way that's different than an other groups but yeah i mean it's important to realize it's also important to realize that in the past decade um even maybe even a period where there's just been sharp distance uh differences smaller than a decade well it doesn't say in the past decade because it's also it's but also been a long time coming i think um you know the state of israel has, has existed for the better part of a century and it's 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 something that has developed its own strong nationality and identity outside of that and it's moving on to a new thing and that new thing is more aggressively i don't know um ethnocentric and and it's it's moving into a different thing. We're moving into a new era of this thing. Um, but in like I said in the past, there is that whole Jewish lobby, APAC kind of whole connection, and that, I, I do think that has kept a certain certain kind of of anti-Semitic, if you want to call it that, like ideas alive mm-hmm. over time. And that's where like you would have seen these views become much more marginal after the war had it not been for the state of Israel. And that's just like a fact that doesn't really lend any credence to any specific views that, you know, yes, some people in the margins would have these kind of views about Jewish people, but without there being a Jewish state and you know a Jewish lobby and everything, then those views would, would 
continue to be marginal, um, actually, and, and way more taboo than they would have been before the war, obviously. Um, but I also like, I, I think it's important to point out that things aren't monocausal. Um, I think, I don't know how much involvement there was between some factions within the United States establishment of government or whatever, or the Jew, the Jews or the CIA and the Dulles brothers. I don't know who might've had in, in, in the, like the 19. 19- 45 to 47 period i really don't know i know a lot of stuff was going on that was very much homegrown within like palestine but um as and this is a very chaotic world after in the immediate couple years after world war ii so I, it's a probably a really fascinating history if, if you read a book about it but i certainly have not but i think that once the state of israel is founded and once it gets attacked by all the arab states and then, then all those arab states you know military attachments and armies and everything gets defeated and the palestinians get driven out and into refugee camps blah 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 so on and so forth you know the story i think once that happens and the the, the, the jewish state is founded and then it survives for a certain number of time within the cold war context that 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 wholly guiding like the the cold war thing that's wholly guiding the united states the the state the i mean the american state that's um this bipartisan kind of anti-communism global you know global you know for lack of a better term right-wing world order the, the the united states half of the um cold war paradigm i i think once that state exists and um not that the other arab states or whatever like immediately go to the soviet union and then as a reaction new united states has no choice but within that whole con that whole concept of a um we mentioned it before you know a a a a group of Arab states that want to be in solidarity, want to want to unite, and having having this, mm-hmm. having this having this thing right in the middle between them, that you know you can't have a United Arab Republic of um, Egypt, Palestine, and, and Syria because if you you know if you know the history, like in '56, the United Arab uh, Egypt and Syria tried to be united, even though they don't. Mm-hmm. They've got they basically got a, a sea and Israel in between them. Um, and and so forth. I think it became very useful and very instrumental for these really strong factions of the United States government, the Democratic anti-communists, which the Democratic the Democratic Party was fanatically anti-communist, like the Kennedys and such, and the uh, they their conservative Republicans, the faction, you know, one of the three legs of that conserv that right wing stool- school of the of the new right, the right wing stool, excuse me, of the new right, the um the anti-communist, you know, hawk, the right-wing um, international hawk, war hawk, I think that bipartisan consensus that was driving the whole Cold War period, you know, obviously saw Israel, if, if, they, if they're going to stick around, we didn't, I don't think they, you, a lot of people would have thought they could have pulled it off, but when, once they did, it became, you know, a very important part of, I think, the U.S. global policy. Sure. Yeah. Um and I, and I stand by that. We talked about that in the previous episode, the idea that I mean, one of the primary reasons, not the only, but one of the primary reasons I think the state of Israel even exists and gets tolerated by, you know, much of the world, um, not not necessarily, you know, Arab nations, but by much of the world, is that it is a stick in the mud to keep a new Ottoman Empire from from rising or, you know, united, uh, you know, Arab, uh, you know, some kind of united Arab nations. Um, like, I, I I fully believe that, that, that that's a major hey, reason. Listen. That, yeah, at the mosque, I'm around. Look, I'm, there's a lot of ethnicities. There's every every Muslim ethnicity you can imagine for the most part. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of ones that are barely represented. But the, the Arabs, 
which is an ethnicity totally based on nothing but the commonality of the Arab language. But mm-hmm. Arab people, when they get together, they love go love talking in their Arabic and they might be from Morocco and the other one might be from, you know, Syria, nowhere. And the other one might be from Sudan, but they love, they, they do have a, a common bond. And I sure. will tell you that I doesn't necessarily mean that, that, that Moroccans and Libyans and Egyptians and Sudanese and, and so forth and Iraqis all want to be in one political union. But I think that mm-hmm. a, a lot of them on the grassroots level would tolerate that. And there would be a tendency towards some, much greater solidarity and that's i think just having an i having a uh a concept of that those nationalities and that 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 ethnic solidarity um just have in just with me having observed there i think that there's plenty of people that are you know very knowledgeable folks at that time would have seen hey uh this is a very useful thing to keep that the, the that really these regions um marginalized just yeah. have that like you said that stick in the mud right smack in the middle because if you look at it like what's the pole of power it's like syria and egypt number mm-hmm. number one tied number one the most the, at the time the potentially most powerful arab countries and then which you got iraq i guess could have been pretty powerful as well they're way over they're on the eastern extreme and you've got the north african countries but they're they could be their own thing over in the west i mean you know what i mean you got egypt egypt sudan but if you look at it like it's a real it's an oddly shaped group of like long chain of countries across like a part of the world but if you look at like the if you look at like like the the core arab countries and the gulf countries being pretty marginal at the time because they were pretty much like desert still they were just starting to develop. If you look at like the center of, I guess, like population and politics, political power and, and economic power, I mean, Israel is right in the middle. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. Um, so I guess to you know to to get to the point of you know part of part of the egregiousness, um, you know, I mean, something I I do want to bring up there the the egregiousness of the state of Israel or. Well, I guess that that's mainly in the question, you know, what what they were drawing attention to. Um, I mean, again, you know, even within, and this is a point I wanted to bring up earlier. Even within, you know, within Jewishness, um, there are a lot of different types of of Jews. You know, I mean, and then there's a lot of different colors. Like there's there's black Jews. You know, there's there's Arabic Jews, right? The Mizraite Jews. You have Ethiopic Jews. You have uh, Sephardic Jews. You know who. Uh, and then you have, you know, like me, Ashkenazi Jews who look white, right? Um, and admittedly, you know, like th- those groups, even to this day, don't treat each other very well. And I mean, this is, you know, one of the most mind-blowing things to, for me. I don't know how this is possible, but there, there, you know, there are Ashkenazi Jews who are white nationalists. That blows my mind. Like, I, I don't understand. Like, do they not hear what their buddies next door are saying? You know, the, the Jews will not replace us. And here you are supporting them. Like, what the hell is this? Um, and, you know, there is an ugly history. And, and you know, Sephardic Jews, Mizraite Jews and other Jews, you know, that where they make claims, hey, the Ashkenazi Jews, you know, when we're even in the state of Israel, they treat us like shit. Or they even use us in medical experiments. Or they do this and they do that. And I think there's a lot of validity. Um, I'm not going to say that I believe all of it, but there's a lot of validity to those claims. Um, and there's a lot of evidence for a lot of those claims. Um, and this is, you know, this is an important point to bring up is 
Like this idea that, you know, oh, it's the Jews or, oh, it's the state of Israel. Yeah, it might be the state of Israel, but, you know, understand like, you know, the, the, the Jews aren't all sitting around going kumbaya with each other. Oftentimes it, it, it's, it's very much the opposite. Um, and it bothers me, you know, that that happens because the world looks at Jews as somehow like this unified ethnic oddity, right? Um, which is another part of this too. I think if if the egregiousness stands out, because one of the points I really wanted with with everything I've been, you know, a lot of what we've been talking about and what you know what I've been talking about, one of the points I want to bring up is that um in in many ways, and people can disagree with me if they want, and I'll listen, you know, because I'm 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 here for you. I got you. Okay. I like to think I'm a very reasonable person. Um, but in many ways, I don't see where Israel is any worse than any other country. They're all equally horrible. Um you know, except for maybe Saudi Arabia, they're really bad, but you, 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 we, we can disagree on that if we want, but anyway, but, but it's the egregiousness. The reason it seems extra egregious, I think is more because of the oddity that is Israel that are Jews as in, they don't just say, you know, praise Jesus every Sunday or whatever it happens to be that, you know, you, the focus is on them more, but I see no reason, and in fact, I imagine there's tremendous evidence that France is doing just as bad as shit, you know, on any given day. Um, or, you know, take take your pick uh, of the country. And I mean, the question, the question asker, they did say, it's like they know the U.S. is doing terrible stuff all the time, too. And yeah, but part of the reason that I don't think it stands out as much does come down to, again, you know, does your average U.S. military person or, or your average U.S. action or whatever, like it just falls into the noise of this weird thing called Western civilization that so many people seem to be a part of. Anything outside of that comes off as twice as odd and twice as horrible, in my opinion. And that's just as true as it is for Jews, for the state of Israel, as it is, I think, unfortunately, for you know any, any nation that identifies strongly with Islam. And that's unfortunate, you know. So... Penguin, you got thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, let, let me put it. Let me, let me put a different view towards you. Sure. Um, so I don't think that what the state of Israel has done in the past, like seventy or eighty, whatever years, has is comparable to what most countries have done in that period of time. I think, you know, yes, the United States did shockingly horrible things, you know, in greater scale and scope. Um, but they did it in like the 1840s and 50s and 70s and such. Mm. And, you know, norms change and the history marches on. And also like uh, video cameras become a thing and television and, and, and the Internet becomes a thing. And and also, like I said, global norms have changed qu quite drastically. Mm -hmm. um, there's the United Nations. There's like a concept of human rights and stuff like that i think that needs to be taken into consideration that yeah i don't think that the united states does does things uh you know with with strong exception of like the iraq war and stuff like that yeah comparable I, yeah. to but they did but they did it at a, at a different point in history and i mean it might be hypocritical but that's just kind of like the reality yeah i don't know uh i, I mean my my old saying goes and of course you got to back up these things with evidence my old saying goes the only thing that scares me more than than the united states domestic policy is their foreign policy um you know when when you're when you're double tapping you know uh, uh populations you know um 
yeah, I mean, the, the United States foreign policy is 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 an, is is a, a global atrocity um, that has caused you know like people can say well or you know there there's you know ma- massive revolution going on in Iran right now. And that's directly because of nonsense. And and this maybe speaks to your point that, okay, yeah, the U.S. took out the Shah however many decades ago, and that's what ultimately leads to a lot of these problems. Um, But yeah, it's hard for me to to point at one nation um, and say, oh yeah, well, this one isn't as bad as this one. This one isn't as bad as this one. Um, Because eventually everything is only a matter of time before somebody's either shot or locked up. And what do you got, Sec? Yeah, no, all states are bad, and I don't think <laughs> I don't think uh, you know comparing which state is worse is often very silly to me. But I think part of it is kind of what Penguin said. It's like, uh, and what I said at the beginning of this conversation is, mm-hmm. it's stuff that the U.S. was doing forty years ago, but mm-hmm. or fifty, hundred years ago, or whatever, or all the states were doing. Um or even, you know, South Africa in the 80s, but, mm-hmm. you know, 40 years later in the 2020s. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. like where, and there's something to this too, and I, I don't know how to explain this exactly, but so the, the U.S. can splatter like poor brown kids' body parts all over the sand, right? Right. And, but, you know, Israel goes door to door, and it seems... And you know, rips kid, uh, you know, beat beat the shit out of young uh, Palestinian yeah. kids, yeah. pulls people out of fucking mosques, yeah, uh, you know, blows up a whole family because a kid threw a rock at a tank, whatever the thing. And that seems significantly worse to most people, not to me, but to most people than mm-hmm. than the U.S. blowing up a settlement in Iraq or Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. So I think it's the closeness. It's it's less like war and more like the U.S. turning dogs on and fire hoses on black folks in the in their own country. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, I hear you. Okay. So, so I'll take that point in that you're seeing far more human on human violence as to where it's not drone on human violence or right. it's not it's not uh, you know helicopter on human violence, right? Um, and I I can I okay that I can appreciate. I don't appreciate it, but I can appreciate your point you know, in that. Um, yeah, that's fair. Penguin, what do you got? Uh, keep in mind that a lot of the, you, you talk about like maybe the, I, I'm not going to, you didn't use this exact word, but the barbar barbarity of like, uh, American policy and especially looking mm-hmm. at like, uh, the cold war period, basically. So, you know, forties to the nineties to mm-hmm. 1990 or whatever. Um, yeah, pretty bad. I'm, I think as libertarians, we have a unique tradition of really strongly opposing and come and, and, and leading the charge against opposing like that. Very formative yeah. to like modern libertarianism in in America, I should say. Um, I think that's a really important part of like the narrative of like the, the foundation of like American libertarianism. But just looking at the issue, um, by and large, yeah, it was horrible, brutal global campaign of absolute cruelty and barbarity. But uh, to be fair to that period of time um it was mostly done by proxies mm-hmm. it was basically it was mostly done by proxies and people like people in the domestic sense it's just just your average everyday people they look at that and they don't see the u.s doing it i mean yes the u.s is tra- training you know death squads and, and rape squads in the uh, school of the americas but that's all kind of a very nuanced point that most people don't know about sure. and in reality uh, and, and there might be you know green berets in the country but that's they don't there's not an official or you know strong 
numerically large uh, military presence in so-and-so countries. So, I mean, to be honest with you, you know, again, those death, those death um, squads were composed of, of, of natives of, of whatever mm-hmm. country in pretty much all cases. I mean, actually the, the communists would, would have, would have uh, a lot of cross border stuff, but in, 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 in a lot of the cases, you know, the, the American enforcers of the, uh, of the, of the, the brutal, um, global, I guess, us, NATO, liberal, liberal, right wing, whatever you'd call it, like, like, like uh, global order. Mm-hmm. It was mostly composed of natives. And it was, and, and so you see that on the news. If you do see footage or you see evidence of that, you're like, Oh yeah, those, those barbaric Guatemalans, you don't really differentiate or, or say, well, where are those people on those tactics, who's tactics, who's arming them? So on and so forth, so on and so forth. So I don't think actually that people draw a, a parallel against the United States military doing these things. Cause by and large, other than like, quote unquote advisors, the US military wasn't doing those things for all of those decades. That I think a lot of the stuff you were alluding to actually mm-hmm. occurred. Sure. No, again, you know, that's that's fair. Um and I and I can and I can really get that. Uh one thing I want to make you know super clear, um, and I know I said it in the last episode too, but just to make it clear again, I mean, even if I were somebody, you know, I'm an anarchist, but even if I did believe in you know the existence of nation states, um and and also i do have uh spiritual tendencies within within judaism itself i do consider myself a kabbalist uh you know even even within a, a, a jewish religious practice i think it's super clear i mean there's argument about it but i think it's super clear that that you the state of israel as it is should not exist like this this should have never happened um it should have never even have been tried for uh, everything about it is like, it goes right against the, against the Tanakh, right against Midrash. Like, I mean, it, it, it's, and most in the United States, especially most of the people who you would look at and, you know, they have, you know, they're the quote unquote, the funny hair, right. They'll have their telephone and everything. Um, you know, a lot of them are, or not all, but many of them are Hasidic Jews and, you know, and the like, and they all, they're, they're in line with my, you know, with my thinking. No, the, the state of Israel should not exist. You know, so even the people that, that you know, every day you see that you think are the most hardcore Jews out there, most of them likely don't agree with the existence of the state of Israel, you know, as it stands. Like, it's meant to be something that is more given to them and that the populations of the earth want them to have. Well, as we can clearly see, most of the populations of the earth do not want that thing to exist as it is. And what's happening to the Palestinians is, is, you know, an atrocity and and that word is far from strong enough. Um, But this is a really key point to understand that again, most, I, I, I dare say, I would argue most Jews in the world do not support the existence of the state of Israel. And, it, so correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it's mm. my understanding that they're not supposed to return to Israel until the Messiah comes, right? Isn't that the idea amongst yeah, that's, like orthodoxy? Yeah. So so there's this idea of what's called the three oaths, and this gets pulled out of the book known as the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, well, I mean, for, for Jews, I think it's clear uh, that it says th- th- these three oaths are oaths between the earth and God. And God is saying, okay, you can't go into the land of Israel like a wall, meaning you can't have a mass influx of Jews come into the land of Israel, which is exactly what happened. Um, Also, you can't, 
let's see, it, there's also part of it, part of the three O's, one of the O's is actually an oath with the Gentiles, which is you can't be too hard on the people of Israel, um, or, you know, with on Jews, effectively. But then the, the second one is that, you know, God says you, you can't rebel against the, the nations of the world. And that is explicitly saying, and then you get commentators like Maimonides, all the big, or many of the big names, not all, but many of the big names within Jewish history, uh, within, within rabbinicism, I should say specifically, uh, who would say that, well, since you can't rebel against nations of the world, you can't go to war to take over the land of Israel again. It, that's, that's where it comes from. It has to be given to you. And, or it comes during the messianic age when, yeah, like the lost 10 tribes of Israel have to come back or, or will come back and come into the land of Israel, you know, eventually. But again, that also can't happen as a wall, right? It can't happen as this big influx. So, you know, I mean, the, to me, the Midrash is very clear in what it's saying that, again, Israel as it stands should not stand. It should not exist. And it's not even something that Jews should actively push for. It is something that they will be given you know, within their own religious context. Um, and we, we could get into other areas with this, but Penguin, what do you got? Yeah, I mean, I just think you can't discount the fact that, like, you know, there was a lot of different ideas of Judaism. First, first of all, I guess you, mm -hmm. you should just go back to the very simple point where, uh, again, you say all that, but the, the initial Zionists were a uh, secular nationalist movement. Sure. Um, like a lot of Jews are secular, and a lot of Jews are secular. It's also an ethnic identity as well. And, you know, I think Herzl and a lot of his crowd were um, right. secular and atheistic nationalists. And this comes around in a time when we got to point out this comes out comes into one of those big um those top periods of time that were uh, of that were big globally on ethnic nationalism and that's mm -hmm. where you see like all the bosnians and croatians and serbians all getting their own countries and mm -hmm. i think serbia was a kingdom historically but like bosnians and croatians and hungarians and all that stuff all this becomes all this was in the context of greater nationalisms throughout it was one of those big periods of time of like really strong fervent ethnic nationalism where like right. minorities within empires and stuff were um you know and so he's they're in they're, and they're these are ashkenazi jews these are european jews so they're in they're they're within that they're developing their own version of that that kind of ideology it's not happening in a vacuum it's not happening just among jews or it has nothing to do with just among jews and it's right. not obviously religious as you pointed out um and also like you know because people were thinking about let's put the jews over in siberia or china or uh, madagascar or uganda or whatever mm -hmm. well or south america somewhere or i, I mm -hmm. never heard of arizona and oregon but um who would have thought I, I think it was such a long shot i don't think anybody thought that the palestine thing was going to happen and I don't, I don't know how yeah. much outside support they got. Outside support, sure. But I don't know how much outside support they got. I mean, it was a chaotic part, part of like a period of global history. And I, I, I just, it's such an, it's such. I don't think it was even considered that this was going to happen without massive outside help. And there was outside help, but I don't think it was massive enough that people expected it to work. And it, 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 it was almost an, by accident that it worked. Yeah, no, I agree. Well, that's what I was saying with Truman. Truman did, you know, he didn't even want to recognize the state. You know, it existed, but he's like, no, we don't recognize that. It wasn't until much. I mean, again, it, it came down to ultimately a personal favor, but he wasn't even going to see anybody to talk about the, the um, you know, the whole thing. So, yeah, right. I, I don't think that 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 the the Palestinian option was was really on the table for most people. And like we said earlier, originally, the Zionists were they were not they weren't they didn't care if it was in Israel. They just wanted it somewhere They were They were thinking East Africa originally. 
So, well, do yeah. we want to keep going with this or we want to switch on to something else? You guys got more on this or what? Well, I mean, I, 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 I think a lot of good points came out. Um, the complexity of the great. situation. Yeah. And, and, you know, in understanding, uh, you know, again, the, what is the egregiousness and, you know, what, what does that look like? Uh, I was glad we got to define that later on even more. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, we've got, we've got a little time. What, what else do we got? Let's, let's get into something weird. Cause this, this was, this was too normal. I don't know. <laughs> I know no, we're talking like foreign policy and stuff. It's more right. what, is, what the hell is that? <laughs> yeah. Well, man, uh, we got about 15 minutes before you got to leave. Sure. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to give everybody a little teaser and give you a little sneak peek into our secret chat group here. And I'm going <laughs> to let Brian choose from this oh, fucking crazy ass list I got here. All right. So we got libertarian movement history. The oh, universe. We didn't get to that. Oh, all right. Go That's ahead. I think that'd take more than 15 minutes. Oh, yeah. Universe is a hologram. Oh, Algorithms are magic. Mind body duality. Sec is MK ultra. <laughs> Property, the nap, and pacifism, metal, Nazis. Man, I really wanted to talk Nazis, but that's a long one, too. Yeah. Um, Property and Lockean Norm specific, hollow earth, and reptilians. Your choice, Brian. Holy shit. (laughs) (laughs) You got 15 minutes. Let's go. (laughs) Uh, Wow. Um I think we could do the nap and pacifism in 15 minutes. Yeah, yeah, you know what? Actually, that's the one that came to mind for me. Yeah. All right. Okay. Let's Let's do it. it. All right. So I was was listening to one of your user podcasts on the nap, and you were taking huge dumps on the Mm. the nap being the non-aggression principle. Right. Now, you and I are both what some might call egoists, where uh, we are fans of uh, Mox Sterner. And I don't think uh, I don't think either of us think that this morality is universal or natural, found in nature or inherent to human. Yeah, so, morality does not exist straight up. Right. Exactly. Sure. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean you can't find certain social construct you find useful, but that's yeah. a conversation for a different st- time. Now. So you criticize the nap for uh, a number of reasons. One being that it sort of presupposes a certain set of uh, property arrangements. And to me, so I've had um, different perspectives on the nap. Where I kind of sit normally is it for me, it's just it's not like something that's natural or inherent or you find in logic or, or whatnot. Right. And I don't think it necessarily has to be strictly um, in reference to sort of Lockean property norms either. But I, it seems like a decent rule of thumb. You know, like I seem to uh, things seem to be much better when I don't aggress on other people sure. in my life. So for me, it's an entirely like a a useful social construct um, that serves my self-interest. Um uh, so I, I guess can you, I guess can you quickly reiterate your uh, argument against the nap and and like um like what's why I, I I would think being a pacifist yourself you would uh, sort of like a, a concept of of non aggression or a principle. 
Yeah. So, well, so you kind of hit at it. Um, I do like a concept of non-aggression. Uh, what I don't like is the, it's, it's one of those things where it's not the idea, it's the people. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to say, Bingo. Some, yeah. And I'm going to say some controversial things probably just to, just to freak people out a little, maybe, uh, you know, with this as well. Um, but the problem being the people is there are people who set up rules so that they have an excuse to engage in their own tendencies, whatever those happen to be. I'm not, you know, I'd love to judge them and just say they're, they're psychopaths, but you know, whatever, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Um, and my experience, and maybe this is a nice lead into the next into the void where we could do the history of libertarianism. My experience with many, 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 many libertarians being a F list libertarian myself. So, you know, a lot of times these libertarians would even come to me. Uh, my experience is they fetishize someone breaking the nap. And that's where my problem ultimately comes in is they don't like the nap because they think it's a good idea. They like the nap because it gives them an excuse to be the hero or to hurt somebody because they've been hurt. And I, and I can empathize with that part of it, but you know, it, like th this is, it, it, it gives them legitimacy. It gives them a, a hard and fast rule for them to enjoy carrying around their AR 15. And that's a problem because we don't make rules so that we can, you know, that allow us even in breaking them, that allow us to, uh, you know, play out our, our fantasies. Okay. You know, we come up with social constructs. We come up with, you know, like agreed upon concepts, or if you want to use the term rules so that we have an idea of, you know, what each other, how they'd like to be treated. And, but that's not my experience. Why most, or why many libertarians anyway, embraced the concept of the nap. They embraced it because they couldn't wait for someone to break it, not because they wanted everybody to respect it. Um, and that's, and that's when I, that's why I say that it's not necessarily the idea. It's the people. Um, and Zach, do you, do you have something to say to that? Yeah, I would agree with you. I've seen that uh, quite often. And my only other problem with it, and it probably comes from the same type of people, but they treat it like it's the word of God. Yeah. Um, like they have they have deified uh, yes. what's basically a, a decent principle when uh, when it's it's nothing. It came from human minds. It might be a good mm -hmm. idea, but it's still just a an idea that humans came up with. It's not written in stone or in the stars or anything of the sort. So I think right. the same people that sort of fetishize shooting people that step on their lawn um, mm. are the same people that treat it like it's the gospel. Um, and I yeah, have a problem with not both just of those. libertarians. What's that? That's not just libertarians. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's not just libertarians. There's also other people that are not libertarians that, that this that you know again if you step on my lawn I can I can pull out my shotgun. And totally. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that just speaks to the origin of of where a lot of this you know like where where does this fetishization even come from? Where does this embracing of this concept come from? It, it comes from you know uh, from from I, I don't like to use the word trauma, but for the sake of the brevity in the argument, it comes from a lot of past traumas, quite frankly, 
You know, they've been hurt and now they can't wait to hurt somebody else. It, you know, in turn, it's their time. They they get to be the hero now. So um, I think that go ahead. I so like I was mentioning, look, last topic. We're talking about um, you know, I briefly mentioned the context of like Zionism coming out of like a global a period of time in global history where like nationalism is, is becoming a very popular thing throughout you're in a stew of that so likewise when i look at any sort of kind of set of ideas or ideology or anything i kind of look at it in its context like what, what were the people at the time experiencing mm. and thinking of and i think libertarianism you know i've become much more comfortable with the idea and i don't think i'm like this straight hardcore you know um but, but completely unshakingly dogmatic libertarian by any means i think you know this the world's a complicated place but mm-hmm. you know i i'm much more comfortable with the idea of a market a market friendly and property centric libertarianism as as an idea for like human liberation but and that sounds so backwards to so many people because it, it's it's very much the reason that I think Rothbard came up with this and called it anarchism or anarcho-capital, you know, kind of called it mm-hmm. anarchism, used the word capitalism, used the word anarchism, used the word libertarianism, took it from a French anarchist or whatever. The, the whole point of that was to offer a different vision coming out of like Austrian liberalism or whatever, mm-hmm. to come up with a different, you know, Mises and all that stuff is to come up with a different idea of human liberation that so that goes against the grain of what at, by this point was an established kind of orthodoxy of, um, of basically like property abolition and abolition of money and markets mm-hmm. and stuff and the collectivization of property and stuff that this is required for human liberal liber, liberation. This is required to be considered a radical. This is what like radicals overall, I think by this point had kind of, radicalism had kind of coalesced to mostly this kind of people whereas in the 19th century there was a huge diversity of thought um but at the, by the point you know things became you know the left and and radicals have had kind of whittled down to a more communist i think kind of focused thing i mean slowly over time yeah um and i i, I think to but it's coming out of an idea of like human flourishing and prosperity and liberation that has, I think a strong basis in like Austro libertarianism and, and liberalism and, and, and Mises and stuff like that. And I read all this stuff. I'm not an expert, but it, it, it's generally trying to put forth like human prosperity and these, you know, a type of not egalitarianism, but a type of equality compared to, you know, status, status structures and you know a type of human liberation coming out of property that's kind of at odds with like property abolitionist um liberation and i think that it's not meant to be it's not meant to be this kind of thing that like you know i have all this property and you can't step on it and if 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 you do i get to blast you away with my you know my my, uh privately owned nukes or whatever like that's not the point and that's and i think when you so misapply and misunderstand the whole like line of thinking behind the ethos you can kind of twist it in something just just, just kind of so far away from what it's meant yeah. to be in in reality yeah no i and i i hear that um i think i mean another part of this is and, and this will this will come full circle to what to what you're saying penguin i think um 
part of the part of the <laughs> well i don't, I don't want to get stuck on like a language thing because i think i mean a, a nitpick i have with it is that it, it it's almost even though it says non-aggression it's almost subtly telling you aggression 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 and it's making you think about that and i want to i'm going to turn that around but i want to i want to take a little route to get there okay so if we if if it was 100,000 years ago forget about you know concepts of technology things like that like don't 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 put that into the equation but if it's you know so let's say 100,000 years ago or even you know 100 million years ago whatever wh whenever homo sapiens decided to come around okay um the non-aggression principle ultimately really doesn't mean much to them why because they're nomads and they move and they graze and they go to the left and they go to, you know, or they go, you know, they move to the left, they move to the right. And nobody really like cares because there's so much abundance of resources around them in comparison to the amount of humans that there are to take advantage of it, um, that you generally don't run into a problem, you know, uh, or at least that would, that would kind of be the assumption. And so the non I mean, that's, that's an easy, I might not be doing the best job of explaining it, but that's an easy way of explaining, well, look, the non-aggression principle doesn't exist because it's not even, it's not net. If you only had so, so many amounts of people, it doesn't matter what time frame it's in. If you only had so many amounts of people, there's no real need for it, right? Because you can just have the lake over here and the other person could have the lake over there and it doesn't really matter. Um, but that's ultimately what it speaks to is the issue of abundance or the issue of anti-scarcity. And so kind of my problem, while in one sense, because SEC was, I think, right in pointing out that it would seem at the heart of the non-aggression principle, it's about respect. And so it's ultimately about not engaging in violence, not having to engage in violence. And so it could be seen as almost pacifistic if you went that far. But the problem within it is it's not really addressing the issue. It's basically saying, okay, this is mine, don't touch it. It's not talking about what you were bringing up, Penguin, which is, oh, it's about generating human flourishing, about humanity evolving and growing and all that stuff. You ask most people about the non-aggression principle, and I bet that's not going to be what they think it's about, that that's the underlying concept. But really, it should be, right? So what it should exactly. more be, so what it should be is not the non-aggression principle. If we were to coin another term, it should be the pro-abundance principle. And that then speaks to what this is really about. It's not about shooting somebody for stepping on your lawn. It's about ensuring that in the future, there's a lawn to be had. There's a lawn that people could enjoy. And that maybe everybody could have a fucking lawn someday because we could go to the stars and who knows land on what planet. I don't know. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Right. Exactly what I was trying to say. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, but then the non-aggression principle again, and I would say right from the get-go of the term creates the antithesis effect in people's minds, the antithesis explanation, the antithesis route, the antithesis path that you're describing beautifully penguin. It, it doesn't go that direction. Instead, it really just creates a more of a warlike mindset in my opinion that it's about you can't touch my shit instead of we can all have shit, you know, and, and that's, that is a massive issue. Um, and again, when we would say that the non-aggression principle is supposed to be about respect and respecting other people, well, the ultimate way to respect another person is to fucking let them live. And that's where my passion, yeah. you know, comes in. Yeah. I think that my, 
you know, increasing comfort. I don't want to say embrace, but like my my increasing comfort with the idea of like anarcho capitalism and, 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 and property is just based on the fact that I think it's just widely misunderstood and misapplied. I, I I just think that it comes out of a very different place than the place that a lot of the adherents, and maybe it's because there's a filter effect with like the terminology and stuff, and maybe because, like you said, maybe there's a fundamental flaw with how it was presented and how things are named. And I think that's probably pretty close to true. I mean, it's certainly part of the cause here is that like, uh, because there's lots of people wouldn't come to the same, maybe bad conclusions um, or less than ideal conclusions independently if that weren't the case. So I think, yeah, I'm cool with the concept, but it requires a better understanding of like, I don't know, liberalism in the backgrounds of these people and what like, the history of property and stuff like that and what it's what it's like to to and not have the rule of law and what the rule of law means in a you know you know a, a, an anarchist or a libertarian concept context like that's higher level stuff than just like get off my lawn you know mm-hmm. yeah well brian we got to let you go i know you got a hard stop and appreciate uh, it man. yeah um thanks for coming on again and uh, it was very very well said i appreciate you sort of expanding on that uh on the on the nap there and your argument for that but i i pretty much agree with you so it i think yeah you're correct I, i'm sure i'm sure in the next episode let, let we need we need to earmark the next episode for being the history of the libertarian movement online or in general and <laughs> this will come up again guaranteed and so if we have other points we want to get out i'm sure we can make them for sure and audience i promise we'll get way weirder next time you heard the list yeah we got plenty coming at you it'll be way weirder than this um who knows? Uh, uh, Brian might get into Kabbalah. a lot. We should throw that on the list too. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, thanks for coming on, dude. Your your perspective is always I I, I always get a, a ton out of it. So I, I appreciate you coming on again. And um, and everybody, like I said, everybody listening, um, we're gonna get weirder next time. I'm gonna um schedule the next void after me and Brian get off of here, and then uh, we'll uh we'll get super weird. Um, but everybody be excellent to each other. Brian, you want to plug some stuff? I know you got well, a bunch just, of shit going on. Sure thing. Um, I will just say quickly, uh, I really appreciate, I mean, cause we all have, I think we have at least in certain ways, three different, uh, uh, at least, uh, angles we're coming from. I don't want to necessarily say perspectives cause I think we agree on a lot, but you know, three different angles that we come from and, and I think it presents a lot. It's just great to talk to two brilliant guys like you about this stuff. Um, even when it's the things that aren't so weird, but I do love getting into the weird and I can't wait to do that. But uh, if you want to get some other wackiness from me, of course, just head over to uh, sovereigntech.com. Uh, it's S O V R Y N tech.com. Or you could go to the really short version of the URL, which is nwo.red, which that'll just freak everybody out right now. So <laughs> <laughs> it's the perfect I'm telling you, he's a Jewish <laughs> lizard. I'm telling you, I've seen it. I've seen it. I love uh, it. <laughs> thanks again, brother. Always a thanks, pleasure. Uh, Penguin, you got anything else real quick? Penguin? Penguin? No? Sorry about that. Um, no, I don't have yeah. <laughs> anything. Thanks, Brian, for coming on. That was a great episode. I talked a lot in this one, um, and I learned a lot, actually. In between talking, I definitely learned a lot about the, the state of Israel and a lot of – yeah, that was that was good. Um and I think we we have we put put out some narratives there that I had maybe I think this episode kind of pieced together a lot of little thoughts I had I've had on my own and kind of put them into a, a, a better narrative. Like, yeah, I, I've definitely learned a lot, and I can definitely present 
present those like disjointed ideas a lot better. So um, yeah, I can't wait to talk about um, the history of the libertarian movement because basically there's this stuff that you're not going to know if you weren't there and I wasn't there for all that, but I'm very interested to know. It'll be a good time. Thanks brothers. Appreciate it. All right. Peace brother.